As recently as last week, I mentioned that the summer series will be short weekly sessions with me. And uh, that wasn't planning on airing any interviews over the course of the summer. However, my friend Maria is due with her very first child in just a few short weeks. And um, this means that over the past few months, I have been reaching out to um, different consultants and different advisors in the pregnancy space and also in the postpartum space and recording a few sessions. While I was planning on just making these available to Maria privately um, over on YouTube, what I started asking myself is why wait? Why would I wait until the fall to go ahead and air these when they would be helpful to women who are soon to be moms. Um, so why not just go ahead and air them now? And so my interview with Rochelle McLean is airing today. Now, Rochelle has been in love with the idea of baby rearing and childbearing from a very young age. In fact, when she was just 10 years old, Rochelle knew that she wanted to be an OBGYN. And that was even her license plate tag for years when she was in college. Now, due to life's events, she wound up not becoming an OBGYN, but instead becoming a doula. And uh, she shares a little bit in today's episode and today's uh, conversation about her work as a doula However, what we really focus on is Rochelle's intense and advanced and knowledge of lactation consulting, because what happened is she just naturally started being drawn more and more towards lactation consultant um, during her work as a doula. The other thing that Rochelle did um, during her her work as a doula is she started to realize that there was a lack of availability for an all-in-one store uh, for moms-to-be and also people shopping for moms-to-be to just go in, um, feel very at ease in the store so it's not in <laughs> where so it's where shopping is not a baffling ordeal. Um and instead, they're able to go in, get one-on-one -on -one, um, uh, advice and recommendations, and just actually enjoy the shopping experience when selecting items for newborns and moms-to-be. And Rochelle also kind of took that a step further and turned it into not just your one-stop shop, for newborns and moms-to-be, but also your one-stop shop for courses around healthy delivery, healthy pregnancy, and also healthy postpartum. So Babies in Bloom, which is Rochelle McLean's store right here in downtown Vista, offers programs including baby CPR, uh, baby wearing, uh, car seat installation, and of course, lactation consultation for moms to be. So um, 
Today, we're focused mostly on that lactation piece. However, during the course of today's conversation, you're going to hear Rochelle weigh in into several different areas of pregnancy, healthy delivery, and postpartum. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Holistic Wellness, a podcast exploring the science and metaphysics of health and wellness. I'm your host, Brandi Searcy, founder and formulator at Rain Organica, where you'll find holistic skincare in one simple routine. One more thing. Maria is one of the key inspirations behind Leave No Trace Cleanser. So when we when I originally had this idea for a really gentle cleanser, Maria, who loves to hike and backpack, in fact, it's something that her and her husband both share a love for. He has hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. Um, so anyways, Maria told me that when she's backpacking, there are two things that make her feel human again at the end of each day, and that is brushing her teeth and washing her face. Now, for anyone who's ever been backpacking, you know that it's oftentimes a struggle to bring along just enough water for you to drink throughout the day, much less extra water to be able to wash your face. So um, when I was developing this cream cleanser, one of the key things that I was interested in is if you happen to have any residue of the cleanser left on your face, it was not irritating and not in any way aggravating or stripping to your skin. And so the goal with this cleanser was really to create a cleanser that would cleanse your skin without stripping it. And again, this is even if you had residue left over. So the intention was you could apply this cream cleanser and then wipe it off of your face, either with a dry cloth, or if you happen to have a little bit of water, um, a damp cloth. And if you're somebody that likes traveling with your entire um, three-step skincare routine, then it would be using your toner even to dampen cloth that you would use to take your... Uh, your cleanser off your face. And if you've been around for a hot minute and listened to any of the podcast episodes where I talk about skincare and talk about what your skin's needs are, um, then one of the things, um, then you'll know this already. Um, if you haven't li listened to those yet, here's my thoughts. And this is coming from somebody who has struggled with acne since um, I was a teenager. So um, when you're dealing with acne specifically, however, it goes beyond acne, it's any skin condition. Then what, and especially if you have oily skin, then your goal is to cleanse without stripping because what happens when you strip your skin? You are sending this message to your skin that it's not producing enough oil. And so that sets your skin up for this vicious cycle where it's creating more oil, which, and not only that, but it's more irritated. So that means it's more inflamed, which means you're more likely to develop additional acne lesions, which is not what you want. And so if you take, just take a step back 
and you focus on cleansing your skin without stripping it. Um, so gentle cleanser, um, gentle cleansing is what we're going for here. Then you're sending this message to your skin that it is safe. It is safe to produce less oil. It is safe to achieve this new state of balance, this new state of homeostasis where it's not generating as much oil. And again, this applies to um, not just acne conditions, not just those with oily skin. This applies regardless because inflammation and irritation is so tied up with so many conditions. It's so tied up with um, the overall health, the overall appearance of your skin. I've linked a couple of episodes in today's show notes for you to go back and take a listen in case you're curious and want to hear a little bit more about that. All right. So now that you know a little bit more about Maria, um, she's been, like I say, definitely a good friend of mine. We've known each other now for seven years, um, played a key. She's, yeah, was a huge, um, was a huge cheerleader and also um, product tester during the development of Leave No Trace Cleanser. Um, it gave tons of feedback with that, with that particular product. All right. So without further ado, Let's get into today's conversation with lactation consultant, Rochelle McLean. Whether you're interested in boosting your chances of getting pregnant, just looking to understand your cycle and your body better, or interested in natural contraception, and yes, it's entirely possible to avoid pregnancy naturally with just as high efficacy rates as hormonal birth control when you understand how your body works, then you might be interested in Rain Organica's program on fertility awareness. Right now, I'm looking for three women who are interested in tracking your cycles, again, for whatever reason, whether you're thinking about becoming pregnant whether you're concerned about your menstrual cycle or suspicious that some of your health um, concerns might be tied up to your menstrual cycle. For instance, if you're a woman with migraines during certain phases of your cycle, or if you have autoimmune flares during certain times of your cycle, then reach out to me at heyatrainorganica.com for more information on how to participate in a program I have right now. Again, that's H-E-Y at rainorganica.com. Today, Rochelle McLean, a lactation consultant and owner of Babies in Bloom, joins me to talk all about pregnancy and lactation. Rochelle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited. I love talking all things pregnancy and baby. So maybe we could start with that on how <laughs> you got so interested in this. Um, yeah, it's something that I've been always really interested in, fascinated by birth from like a really young age, like 10 
I always joke that all my friends wanted to be princesses and ballerinas. And I was like, I want to be an obstetrician, which is just kind of a, a funny thing. But it's always been about the process of birth for me um, from the very beginning. And I had plans in college to go the OB route. I thought that that was my calling. Um, but instead, married married the boy, <laughs> married the boy that I've known my whole life. And he was in the Marine Corps. And that just, that lifestyle does not at that time allow for that kind of a thing. And I was happy for that. I'm like, that's okay. We'll do this instead. Go travel the world with him. But I always still had a yearning. So when I was in nursing school, once our kids were little, um, I took a doula training to be a better L&D nurse. I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to learn all I can about how to make those moms comfortable and provide them a really good birth experience. And I found that the nursing part of it wasn't the part that I was loving. It was the actual being with families. So I worked as a doula and childbirth educator. I still do childbirth education. It's been 20 years. Um, and then early on to that journey, took a lactation training to be an educator and fell in love with breastfeeding. So became a lactation consultant. And that's the bulk of what I do is lactation at this point with some perinatal education on the side. Okay. So when you, when you first entered it and you became a doula, how long were you working with? And so this is something I think I did. I definitely didn't know about is there's definitely... Let me see if I can talk. Different <laughs> categories of doula. There's one that's kind of working with the mom during that last trimester and then some that are postpartum. Correct. So how are you, like what capacity were you working in? So again, this is like around 2019, 99, like a long time ago. Um, and at that point, there wasn't a whole lot of talk of postpartum doulas. Most people who are training to be a doula were training to be birth doulas. And that that's what I did as well, because my plan was to use those skills and work, working with laboring women to help with positioning, breathing, relaxation techniques, all of those sorts of things. So I've worked as doula, like taking a full patient load um, for quite a few years. And in, I'd say probably 15 years ago, more and more people started to look at the postpartum doula role. So it's nothing I've personally done, um, but I've seen so many people do that job so beautifully. And if you think about it, you know, 50 years ago, families were much more geographically centered. So somebody would have a baby and you would have aunts and cousins and grandmas and all the people come to really support the family through that transition time. And nowadays it's just not the case. Um, families are all over. Um, people are having babies a little bit later in life. So maybe the loved ones aren't able to do as much. There's just lots of reasons for it. But it's so nice that we have a group of people who are stepping up to serve families in that way. And so a postpartum doula, instead of a labor doula, is somebody who would accompany somebody in birth um, to wherever they're giving birth or at home if they're doing it at home. And they provide non-pharmacologic you know, relaxation techniques and comfort techniques. They're not somebody who speaks to a provider on the parent's behalf, behalf but they're people there to educate and remind parents of things. Most doulas will do some childbirth education before the birth too, and help parents kind of come up with a birth plan and all of those sorts of things. And there are many doulas who will fulfill both roles. They'll do childbirth education with a family, accompany them through the birth of their baby. And then they might come back and do some postpartum work too. 
but by and large, most doulas fall either into the labor category or the postpartum category. And a postpartum doula will come in after baby's born, either at night or during the day, and they just basically help. It's helping with baby care, helping with like light housekeeping sometimes or meal preparation. There's lots of different roles depending on what that family needs, but it's just a way to kind of help people through that transition time. Okay. Sorry, it was more than you asked, but <laughs> I'm passionate I about know, this is... too and how they serve families. Uh, this is great. And I think the impetus for having a series like this on the show is just because I have some pregnant women in my own life who are, you know, first time, first time mothers to be. And um, I think this would really help them, you know, move through that, that experience, that birthing experience ease. So Getting over into your current work as a lactation specialist, I mean, I'm probably, to be perfectly honest, I'm probably going to go back and forth a lot between talking about doulas. That's totally fine. Um, So, so you decide that you enjoyed working with families. And so this, this is, this kind of led to your pursuit of like becoming a lactation specialist and kind of working with that piece of it. Correct. Right. Because so much of what I was doing as a doula was, you know, when I'd come back and visit the family after the baby was born, moms are having difficulty with feeding. So then I'm like, okay, I'm an education junkie. I'll take a class and learn more about breastfeeding and be able to help in that way. And then that's just magical. Like I just love everything about supporting families with lactation. Um, So I went from an educator teaching breastfeeding classes and then went back and earned my IBCLC um, so almost 17 years ago. And so that is okay. just, I love it. And it's just such a rewarding career. So every step has just kind of led to the next step as far as the education on my part goes and the way my role has changed. And so what is the role of a lactation consultant or a lactation specialist? I guess, I mean, I think I also feel like this is a this is a place where women can feel really um, disappointed in themselves as mm-hmm. with being a new mother and not being able to feed like they want to, right. and so it, it's a huge it's a huge area of almost like shame for a new mom. Well, I think I mean a lot of people, a lot of people who seek out assistance are people who are struggling, but there's also a good portion of people who just seek out an appointment because they want to make sure they're doing it right. Mm-hmm. Um, people spend a lot of pregnancy preparing for birth, reading books for birth, podcasts, classes, and very few people prepare for breastfeeding. I think there's this assumption that babies are just born, you pop them on it, and it just goes. And for many families, that's the case, but not always. And I think people don't realize how their birth experience goes a lot of the time will color how their breastfeeding experience starts. And so when certain choices are made or certain things happen in labor, they can make things a little bit more difficult on the other side. And people aren't expecting that. Again, talking about how families are just far flung. Many women aren't seeing people breastfeed in their day-to-day life. Like 50 years ago, if you were breastfeeding, you watched your siblings get breastfed if you were older or your aunts breastfeeding your cousins. So it was something that was seen and mirrored. And nowadays, 
it just, it's kind of become the lost art. Like people don't see, they don't know what normal is. I think we've also normalized pain with breastfeeding. Um, a lot of people, when they come in, it's usually like two or three weeks later, they'll be like, you know, I heard it was going to hurt. It, it keeps hurting, but I don't think it's supposed to hurt this long. And I always remind them that just because you have pain with breastfeeding, just because it's common, doesn't mean it's normal. It's common that people have pain. It's not normal at all. I've never had somebody come into my office and go, gosh, I would have waited another month for you. That would have been better. Like, no, they're always like, why was I not here three weeks ago? So I think we don't share enough that it's not supposed to hurt and encourage moms who are struggling to get help sooner. There's kind of a suck it up mentality of like, you just keep plugging, it'll just get better. And for some women it does, but generally not. And there's a lot of pain and frustration and discouragement that doesn't need to happen. Okay. So revisiting what you mentioned on breastfeeding is almost the breastfeeding experience can be a continuation of the labor experience. So what, what do you mean by like, if, if the way I'm interpreting it, if they had a difficult labor, they will likely have difficulty breastfeeding or is it certain yeah, it's medications or something? Not always. Um, certain medications do like, for example, and I always tell people like, I don't ever want somebody to feel like that they shouldn't have medication if that's what they're wanting. It's about having the realistic expectation that if you choose certain medications, the chances are they're going to have an effect on baby suck reflex. So when I teach about it in our prenatal classes, it's always like, this isn't saying that getting this medication is bad. It's having the understanding that if your baby's born and they're not really suckling like you would expect, just file that away in your brain hey, this is just temporary. This is an effect of the medication. This will get better. So it's kind of that relationship. Um, if somebody has an induction of labor, they're going to have a lot of fluids on board, which causes their breasts to be more edematous, which can make latching more difficult. So again, it's not saying, hey, you can't have fluids. Sometimes you need fluids. But if you do have a lot of fluids or you do have an induction where they do a lot of fluids, have an understanding that baby might look like they're losing a little bit of extra weight because babies come out kind of puffy. So it'll look like they have this dramatic weight loss. So people start supplementing them earlier and maybe it's not a weight loss issue. It's just kind of a fluid loss issue. So it's those little nuances that I think set people up and breastfeeding thinking they're doing something wrong. I'm doing something wrong. My baby's not latching. They're losing too much weight. This is happening. That is happening. Where if you're working with a skilled knowledgeable provider, they can look at the things and kind of step back and go, Hey, this is just a process of this part of your birth. Let's do this for a few days and let's see how this turns around. So that's more what I'm getting at. I don't ever want, you know, people have to make the choices that they need to make in their birth. But I think it's important to understand that that does have some effect down the, the way. It's not just this one thing and then gone. So if there's certain medications that are given during the labor process or to induce labor, how long is that typically seen, especially ones that impact the newborn's like suckling response? How long is that typically last? It depends on when labor you receive the medication, how much medication you received, age of baby. Like there's lots of variables to it. Um, so it's not like a hard and fast rule. If you do this after this hour for this long, everybody metabolizes medication slightly differently. So some babies, their moms can have a medication and they jump on there like it's second nature. 
other babies are kind of like, hey, what am I doing? Where am I going with this? So it's really individualized. Um, so that's why we just always talk about the potential for things, not that this is going to happen, but that it may happen and things that you can do if it does more like that. Okay. Okay. So when you're working with women, kind of what is your recommendation for when women should seek lactation consultant in an, in an ideal world? Um, before they have their baby. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I was a IBCLC in a hospital environment for over 10 years, and I could walk into a patient's room and pretty much know within 30 minutes if they'd had, or 30 seconds, if they've had any prenatal education, it makes that much of a difference. And wow. again, I think people are not taking breastfeeding classes seriously. And there are so many things to learn to prepare yourself to just have a better journey from day one. So either meeting with a lactation consultant or taking a prenatal class so that you learn where your lactation resources are before you even have baby is kind of a good first step. And then I tell all my students prenatally, hey, if this is painful and it's day two and it's not getting better, seek help. Like there's no benefit in waiting. There's absolutely no benefit because if babies are compressing the nipple or doing something that's causing pain, they're probably not transferring milk very effectively, which is going to lead to weight gain or lack thereof issues and such. So there's no benefit on waiting for help. We would get help. Okay. And with your lactation consultant classes, do you offer those both in person and virtually, or what does that look like? Um, for lactation consultations, we do both um, in person and virtual. And then for our prenatal classes here, um, we do those all in person just to give people a better chance to hold things and try things. It was okay. really interesting. I mean, I know that they're probably doing research on it and this is all anecdotal. I don't have anything scientific to back up. Um, but during the whole, um, pandemic, global pandemic, when people were having to isolate and not see families after birth and all of those things, it was really surprising to many of us who work with families how much better breastfeeding went for these moms, ironically, um, because even though they had less in-person resources, they weren't feeling stretched to entertain family and friends, which again, I'm not saying family and friends shouldn't be there, but there's this thing about breastfeeding in particular that moms come home, they're trying to do it. Family members come to meet the baby. They don't feel comfortable doing it in front of other people till they're better at it. They spend a lot of time isolated in another room, which makes them not want to feed as frequently as they should. And when you strip all that away and somebody can't leave their house and they're just forced to yeah. be and not have to take care of anybody but themselves and their babies, it was just shocking to me and other lactation consultants I've talked to were like, hey, do you have any low milk supply moms? It's like our low, we did have occasional ones, but the amount of moms who had low milk supply went down the amount of moms who just were struggling on any level postpartum really decreased. So even in a very exclusionary place where they didn't have hands-on support at that time, I was supporting people pretty much all virtually, or at some point I was sitting out in our parking lot in a car, six or three feet, six feet away from the family. And we were doing like these curbside consultations for people where I had to actually lay eyes on them. 
And it was just amazing that even in these really difficult circumstances, things actually seemed better. And then as people started returning to the workplace and all of the hustle bustle of the day to day, suddenly breastfeeding felt hard again for a lot of moms. And I'm like, we just put so much pressure on them initially to perform and take care of so many people instead of their own bodies and their babies. But I don't know, just my observations. That is fascinating. So um, I think with that, that, so I have a couple of questions about the low milk supply. And first of all, do you think it was because they, these moms during the pandemic were feeding more frequently, or do you think it was truly just, they had less stress in their life? Um, Probably a little bit of both. I think the feeding frequency, especially in the first four weeks is such an important determinant of milk supply. And there are so many things in most women's day-to-day life in the first few weeks that keeps them from feeding as frequently as they should, that that's kind of the correlation I was seeing. Um, Because you didn't have to cover up to entertain the people dropping off dinner, or you didn't have any other responsibility. So a lot of times when moms are struggling with supply, one of the things we tell them to do is take like a baby honeymoon, just you and baby hang out topless, you know, for a day or two over the weekend to try to bring supply up. And these moms were living that life every day. There was no reason to put clothes on to go anywhere. Babies were just snuggled up skin to skin all the time. And if it was free there for them to feed, then they fed more frequently. Okay. More like that. And then when you start having to go places and go to appointments and make meals and have people come, it just adds that hustle bustle. A lot of people feel concerned that stress causes low milk supply. And what I see more in my office is stress causing a delay in milk letdown, but not necessarily in supply. Because we're just like any other mammal, we have to be able to run to safety with our young And the example I always use with parents is if you were a rabbit having a baby or feeding a baby in the forest and a hunter came up, you would have to stop all that to get to somewhere safe. And so with lactation, when you feel anxiety or stress or people watching you, that watched pot thing, it makes it hard for you to relax for the hormones that you need to flow for milk to let down. Once milk is letting down, usually you're in a pretty good shape, but a lot of people ask about the relationship with stress and supply. And it's more so, in my opinion, related to letdown. Stress affects letdown much more than it affects supply directly. Like it might affect supply if moms aren't eating or drinking enough because they're, you know, struggling with some mental health stuff or things like that, but not a direct, I feel stressed out. Therefore my supply will plummet. It's usually more how you're reacting to the stress that causes the effect on supply. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, so one more question about that, since we kind of just t- touched on the feeding frequency and maybe that related to the breast supply or the milk mm-hmm. supply. So could we just talk about that a little bit more um, in terms of, and here it, so I, I almost hate to ask because I hate to get into this locked schedule or this set schedule or the way that things should be, but can we just talk about kind of what is quote unquote normal for a feeding frixie for a newborn? And then as they start to age a little bit. Sure. Most babies when they're born will eat eight to 12 times in a 24 hour period. And that's the way I like to say it to parents versus every X number of hours. Um, because we're all different. If you and I went to lunch yeah. after this podcast, 
We would eat at different times. We would eat different amounts. We would eat one of us faster, one of us slower. And babies are just little people. And we always have this expectation that they're supposed to behave in a completely different way. And, and they don't. They Some will have little snacks and then have a big nap and then be really voraciously hungry. Others have it more metered throughout the day. And I think that there are so many books and things out there that make parents think that a baby's going to do this for this many minutes, then this for this many minutes. And I'm sure like 10 or 15% of babies do those behaviors like that, but like 90% of babies don't. And I always remind parents, the baby doesn't read, the baby doesn't know the expectation. You just viewing them as individuals and having their own individual needs is important. But on average, most babies will still eat eight to 12 times for the first few weeks um, in a 24 hour period. And then depending on mom's storage capacity in her breast, some moms make a lot of milk, some moms make a little bit less. And so you can have three babies who are all taking 24 ounces a day. And one might do two ounces, 12 times a day. One might do three ounces, eight times a day. And one might do four ounces, only six times a day. There's gonna be some differentiation after that first month or so. Okay. Yeah, thank you for talking more on that. Kind of switching gears a little bit and talking right. more about babies in bloom as a whole and more, I think more specifically, or kind of the segue into this is beyond lactation classes, mm -hmm. your, uh, I hate to, I, I don't even know the right term. I don't feel like sore is the right term. Your um like babies in bloom just offers so much more right. beyond right. just the lactation classes. So, so could we maybe talk about a few of the other classes that you're offering for sure. moms sure. to be and new moms? And I will say that the whole inception of babies in bloom happened in a spare bedroom in my house when I was just doing <laughs> lactation consults and individual prenatal <laughs> education. People kept saying, hey, where can I get a this? Or you mentioned babies liking that. And so I started having products in my house and realized the importance of people having good education, not just on theories of things, but also in product education. And we quickly grew out of the bedroom and into a little office. And we've continued to grow and evolve over the last 15, 16 years. And so we offer all sorts of perinatal education, childbirth classes, safety classes, CPR, um, newborn care classes, all of those things, as well as a lot of postpartum support on the other side. So um, free breastfeeding support groups, um, car seat installations and checks, and fun classes like baby and me yoga, things like that, baby wearing dance classes, things where families and babies can come together, meet other families and just get to see each other. And then we have an actual boutique part with products and such. Okay. Well, all so, sorts of so definitely all sorts of things. And you mentioned baby wearing. I think this, and again, I am so, I'm like such a novice in, in all of this kind of talk. And <laughs> this is just totally again, more so for support for some of my friends than necessarily me. So <laughs> forgive my ignorance here. How long has that term been around? Oh gosh, for hundreds of years. Like, <laughs> I mean, literally hundreds of years. So if you think about many cultures have always worn their babies, um, Native Americans in the United States, 
way predating the United States carried their babies on their bodies um, in, in structures. And so lots of countries all over the world have always had babies on them in some way, shape or form, if it's a fabric wrap, if it's a canvas, more structured situation. So people have been wearing their babies literally since the dawn of time. That is not new to anybody. Um, we laugh because we had our kids in the 90s and it wasn't as mainstream then, but we we had a baby carrier. We wore our kids in a baby carrier. And a lot of people who feel like it's just a thing from the 2000s, I'm always like, well, no, let me show you some pictures. Here are pictures of people, again, going back centuries of carrying their babies. It was just late to us here, um, adopting more of a traditional way of, of doing that. But having a baby worn, babies love to be close to the body. If you think about the whole time that they're in utero, they're listening to your heartbeat. They're hearing the whoosh, whoosh of your blood pumping through your body. They're hearing your voice. You're regulating so many things for their body. As far as when you're pregnant, regulating their blood sugar, their nutrients getting to them, their waste products going away from them. The minute they're born, a lot of physiological changes happen to them, but that need to be close does not go away. They feel so secure in a parent's arms or a caregiver's arms to be able to hear the heartbeat and be right there and feel the warmth of your body and that movement that they've so been accustomed to throughout pregnancy. It's not a still state for them. They're always being lulled to sleep by your movement. So no, I'm, I'm such a proponent of breast of baby wearing. It's, it's a big deal. Okay. Yeah. And just listening to you talk about it, I, I loved what you were just saying about it and kind of, you know, painting the whole picture of, yeah, we're just, we're so late and we do so many things <laughs> kind of backwards here in the West from what, from what nature intends. Yeah. Um, so we forget those ways. I owned a birth center for seven, almost eight years. And I still go back to this one tour where I was touring grandparents with the family and the grandpa kind of looked at me and he's like, and how long have they been having babies out of the hospital? And I said, well, to be fair, they only have had them in the hospital for the last 50 years. <laughs> All those years before that, they were out of the hospital. And he started laughing. And he's like, I totally didn't think of that. And I said, yeah, a lot of things that used to be normal and common, we got away from. And now we're realizing all the benefits of those things and going back to them. Yeah. What's old is new again. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is. So kind of circling back to to the labor part of it itself, because I also think this is like what you just said is such a huge consideration for so many women about, oh, should I do a hospital birth versus a home birth or versus something in between? Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is this is set, again, such an individual decision that I hate to kind of get into it, but let's go ahead and get into it. Like, what are some of the benefits of, of each of these different scenes for giving birth? Um, I mean, there's just different options. That's the way I look at it. I think people need to give birth in a place that they feel calm, they feel relaxed, they feel supported, they feel heard. Um, for many people, that is a hospital. Um, like a lot of people with the birth center would question things and and you can tell. And I'm like, if this isn't where you're going to be comfortable, this isn't the best place for you. It doesn't mean that this is better than that or home is better than hospital. Hospital is better than home. 
in a healthy, low-risk birth. It's a life process, not a medical process. So <laughs> we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. Um, midwives are amazing skilled providers who are taught the normalcy of birth. And they're very, very good at seeing when things start to deviate from that. I know that a lot of people are like, well, what about an emergency? If there's a medical emergency for most emergencies, you can see things coming from a mile away. Like you can tell the babies are not tolerating the labor or things like that. So you generally would have plenty of time to transfer a mom to a hospital setting if that then becomes the better place for her to give birth. Um, but I think that people don't give enough credit to midwives actually laying hands on bellies and feeling contractions and feeling the quality of contractions, seeing what a mom is actually responding to those contractions. As technology has gotten great and it allows for, you know, more monitoring and more other things like that, you know, there are things that are very safe about that and we're glad for the technology when it's needed. But we've also seen in this country a shift the other way where it's almost become too technical for many healthy parents. Um, again, there is definitely a segment of the population who needs every single piece of technology that we have. Um, but the overuse of technology can actually cause things that create more concerns for babies and moms than it helps. Um, if you study any kind of, look at any kind of research about infant and maternal mortality, we don't rank very high here as high as we right. should. So yeah just having technology doesn't make it the right answer. And oftentimes it can, it can lead to things being difficult. But I also, when I'm teaching perinatal classes, I said, you know, so many people kind of go after OBs going, oh, they induce too soon. They do C-sections too early. They do all these things. And I think the flip side of that is medical malpractice insurance for OBs is astronomical. And we've kind of painted them into a corner where people are suing them for everything that happens. I understand that feeling of wanting to control everything. If you're going to be held liable for all of it, then you want to, yeah. try to ensure. So it, we're just, it's a broken system in my opinion, which take it for what it is. I, I think that it's something that we're seeing again, more people going back to traditional ways and trying to determine how much is this technology helping and how much is it hurting? And many families are exploring other options. Again, we saw during the pandemic as hospitals were forced to limit the amount of people who came in with moms, moms not wanting to go give birth by themselves, people sought out of hospital birth at a much higher rate than what was seen before. Um, because of the way things are going with the pandemic, there were less inductions, less scheduled things because hospitals were so burdened. And we saw a lot of those rates go down. So it makes you wonder, are these necessary? Some of the things that we're doing. So it's not for me to say it's not, I don't have, I'm not doing the research, but just sitting back anecdotally, we saw a lot of things go down during that when there was less oversight and more just letting bodies naturally go into labor and do what they needed to do. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, because I'm sure somebody at some big university is doing something to kind of prove these things. It's all things that we in the community talk about what we see in our own practices, but I'm interested to see what all shakes out five, 10 years down the road when we've kind of compiled the statistics. And I think I'm hopeful that that will kind of shift our thinking and birth and, and treatment of pregnant people. 
Yeah. So another question about just the labor process itself and um, what maybe some of the more common, especially with your work as a doula, like what were some of the more common things that presented for women that were entering into labor? Um, you mean, I'm sorry, I misunderstood the question. It, in, yeah, like common, like here specifically, I'm thinking about back labor, which mm -hmm. again is a new term, <laughs> was a new term for me. <laughs> and that sort of thing, like how often is the labor process difficult? And like, what are the common causes that you saw for that? Okay. Um, well, I can take back labor specifically. So back labor okay. happens when babies are malpositioned in the pelvis as they're being born. And there are a lot of things that people can do prenatally, just as far as posture, um, body work on their own bodies, things to help open up the pelvis so that babies settle in in the proper position. So a lot of those okay. things can be prevented by having good body mechanics prior. And then for some women, babies just go where they're going to go. Like you try all the things and they still settle in backwards. Um, but there are positions that you can use in labor, letting gravity kind of help flip a baby or encourage a baby to turn so that they're not the square peg in the round hole, if you would. So uh, again, a lot of those things are predicated by how your labor unfolds. We know that for most women, they do, they have shorter labors, more comfortable labors if they're allowed to move in labor. So the more movement, yeah. the more changing of positions, it's not a static thing. It's a baby trying to move through a pelvis. And so if you can shift and move and do the things and open the pelvis, babies have ways of coming down. But in the case of an induction or an epidural where people are having to be constantly monitored, that limits their movement. And so then they're flat on their back, hooked up to things, which then prevents babies from kind of corkscrewing their way through. So it it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. There are things that some people just have to do or choose to do that can kind of cause other things. Not everybody goes that route, but it just increases the likelihood of it. We know that people who get epidurals are more likely to have to use things like Pitocin to speed up the labor. And we know that people who are induced with Pitocin or other meds are more likely to require pain medication because it's usually more uncomfortable. And we know both of those things increase the likelihood of a cesarean birth. Not saying everybody who gets an epidural or gets an induction gets a cesarean. It's not like that at all. But those are things that increase the chances of that happening. Okay. Switching. I told you I was going to be all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> like um, like Whack-a-mole. We're good. <laughs> okay. So kind of switching back over to the product side of Babies in Bloom. Does your store... Do you also include prenatals or any kind of supplements or what does that look like for um, moms to be? Um, we do have some supplements, both for um, pregnancy and for postpartum. A lot of those things were encouraging moms to be talking to their care providers about what things that they should be having because yeah. um, everybody's so different and and needing things. And even like with all the breastfeeding supplements, people come in and go, what supplement do I need? I need more milk. And I'm always like, well, it depends on why your supply is low. 
you know, for certain reasons, we would recommend this supplement. For other reasons, we would recommend that supplement. So encouraging them to talk to their provider, talk to their lactation consultant, and figure out which thing is the right thing for them. And we try to carry a wide range of things just to make it easier for people to have it all in one place and not having to wait to order something online or what have you, having someplace you can go get it. Um, but I think so much of that is so individual and needing to know where your body is lacking or needing extra. Okay. I feel like there are about a million other questions <laughs> I could ask you and just like keep going right up because, well, I mean, first of all, you are so knowledgeable in all of this. And then second of all, I love how like you're, you're truly looking at humanity as a whole and thinking about how this has been done for thousands of years. And mm -hmm. I mean, kind of to your point of just the influence we have here in the West of, yeah, when we stepped in with all of the things that are supposed to make things better, right. you know, numbers have, have kind of gone in the wrong direction. Um, which again, like sometimes those things are absolutely necessary for saving for saving a life hundred percent, but anyway, yeah. So, but yeah, it just, yeah, go ahead. Great. No, I just started to say anything yeah. done in excess is not great. It's like knowing what you have and when to use it is I think the key to this. Not that I'm yeah. out here to solve maternal mortality. I can't, um, but I think that there are more and more people talking about it and looking at things and, and feeling frustrated and wanting better for this next generation of people having babies. Yeah. As we start to wrap up, is there any advice you would give for new moms? Oh my gosh. Uh, my big top three are always seek support, you know, find a circle of support, whether that's professional providers, friends, people who've done this before. I think new parenthood can be isolating for so many people in so many different ways. So especially before baby is here, knowing Where's that postpartum mental health hotline? Where's that lactation consultant? Is my car seat incorrectly? Do I have friends who can help do a meal train for me? Like just getting yourself set up for support, I think is key. Um, I think it's important to, to feel okay reaching out to that support team. Like a lot of times people <laughs> have the support and then they're real hesitant or they just don't even know how to ask. Um, I do a lot of my prenatal education to partners and family members. I'm like, the mom's not always going to say, hey, I'm feeling this. I need this. A lot of this relies on you to kind of come back and look for that and and see where she could be better benefited. Um, I don't know. I'm all about support. Support is just such an important part of things, I think. And then mom's just giving themselves grace. I think we we have... We're in a society where we feel the need to be perfect in every area, every arena, and we're not. Um, it's not Instagram life. That's just the shiny best versions of yourselves. And I think when you're home, isolated, alone, scrolling social media and seeing other moms doing it better um, or doing it more effortlessly or their houses look clean, what they don't see is it's just a clean part here. Not like if I shift the camera and then you can see what's happening <laughs> over there. So I think there's a lot of comparison for new moms. And I, I think giving themselves grace is really important. And my last thing, and most importantly, I think is just listen to your gut. It's, I tell my prenatal people all the time, I'm so glad I had my kids 25 years ago because I would 
probably lose my mind now. Um, 25 years ago, we got Parenting Magazine once a month. That's all that came. You had your friends who were having babies. There was very little outside influence. I did what I thought was right for my kids, and I didn't feel judged about it. And nowadays, parents have books and articles and podcasts and mom Facebook groups, like all this information where two things will tell them to do it this way. And then this other thing says, no, don't do it that way. And I, I feel that so many parents give away their power to other people. And I'll, and I'll say in the class, like, don't listen to me. If you go home and you're like, Hey, all that stuff that lady said does not sound good to us. Throw it away. Take what resonates with you as a family and and kind of build on that and I oftentimes share a story with them when our youngest was born she was like one I make it about two years apart just under she did the proverbial thing I could see her across the room she grabbed a penny popped it in her mouth and swallowed it before I could get to her and I called our pediatrician and I said hey she swallowed a penny and the pediatrician's like it's okay just watch her diaper it's all good kids do it all the time and then a couple hours went by and she just didn't see him herself. I called him back and I'm like, you know, I don't think she's right. Can we come in? I'm kind of concerned. And he was like, she's fine. Kids literally eat pennies all the time. You're totally fine. Just watch your diaper. And my husband got home from work and he did the, yeah, you know, she's not choking. She's not anything, but she just seemed off. So I called a third time. And to this day, 20 some odd years later, I can hear in his voice, the doctor saying, listen, she's fine. Kids eat pennies every day. Watch her diaper. She'll be good. And kind of hung up. And my husband and I having successfully have now this almost three-year-old felt like we were pretty competent parents. We took the one-year-old to the ER and they x-rayed her. And it was just in her throat, just to skew on the side. Mm -hmm. It would have taken nothing. And that would have been a much more catastrophic outcome. And they ended up, you know, putting her to sleep, taking it out, doing the whole yard and they had even called in other people to see it because they're like, this never happens. This is like a freak thing. And the next morning I went and fired my pediatrician. I went to my pediatric office, got my kids records. And I told him, I said, I didn't expect you to know this. Everybody and their mother's uncle in the ER told us how weird this was. They had to transfer her to a children's hospital. We all understand that this was a rare thing, but you didn't listen to me. And mm -hmm. we know her better than anybody else. And zero stock was taken in what we were feeling as her parents. And so I always try to really impart that upon my students with my lactation clients I work with, with the, the parents who come in the store just shopping. Like, you know, this baby, you've known this baby intimately since before they were born. And I wish we wouldn't rob parents of their self-confidence because they really are their best advocates. They are the perfect parents for those babies. And kind of sometimes tell them that they're not and that makes me really sad so not to be all bummery at the end but I just I really wish we we as a community spent more time building up new parents because I think they need and deserve all the support and love in the world to get through this and we're not doing enough of that oh Rochelle that was so beautiful and I feel like that it stems beyond just beyond just your child, it also extends to yourself because so often we're discredited by doctors and we're turned down and we're told that, yeah, these symptoms that you're experiencing, either right. it's normal or it's not related to the thing that you think it is. And it, we, I mean, we're having this, we're having to, it's almost like we're having that connection with ourselves challenged mm -hmm. and eroded every single day. And yeah. 
what you're saying, I mean, it's like the same way with your children is the same. I'm a dog mama. So it's the same way with my dogs. Like I know when there's something wrong with them. And I'm, you know, I've been in this situation before where the vet won't listen. So I I really appreciate sharing that. And I I get it. It's, It's all of us, right? It's just always having to be your own best advocate for everything and the people and, and pets that we love. Yeah. Well, how can people connect with you? Um, best way is usually through the internet. <laughs> so our website, we have a website that is um, babies, plural, babies-in-bloom.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, all of the places, um, babies in bloom. So feel free to reach out, ask questions. We try to do a lot of informational stuff on our social media too, to help people just get information where they can. Okay. Okay. It was so lovely to chat with you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm so glad we got the opportunity to connect. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me so much. Thank you so much for joining me today with this conversation with Rochelle. In case you know someone who might enjoy today's episode, go ahead and send this link over to them. And be sure to subscribe to Holistic Wellness, where this Friday, you'll a new episode drops. And this episode rounds out our conversation around how to feel your best and support optimal wellness mentally. So last week on the uh, show, we talked about how to support your optimal wellness from a dietary aspect and from a what you put in your body aspect. And in here, when I say what you put in your body, I mean physically. And this Friday, we're looking at it from an energetic, emotional Uh, mental, even spiritual standpoint. So be sure to join me for that conversation. And then um, starting next week, I'll be bringing you a new series. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, bye.